Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Godfrey Hodgson on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Myth of American Exceptionalism. You may think that America is different from all other countries. Many Americans think this. Mr. Hodgson does not, and he puts forward a very impressive and challenging case in this book. I I agreed with some of it, and I didn't agree with other parts of it, but I can tell you that I certainly found the conversation very stimulating, and I think that you'll find the interview stimulating as well, because Mr. Hodgson has seen a lot and done a lot and met everyone and written for everyone and uh, is a really an old hand and a seasoned observer of American life. So he's somebody we should definitely listen to. And I was glad that I got the chance to talk to him. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Godfrey. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well today. Um, where are you exactly? You're uh, in the UK, obviously. but uh, uh, Yes, I'm, I'm sitting in my home, which is about... 12 miles outside of Oxford in the village, mm-hmm. and um, uh, this is where I work. I'm in my study, surrounded by books and stuff like that. Well, that sounds really wonderful. Um, I, I, of course, am in Iowa, surrounded by um, corn. No, that's really not right. true. Right. <laughs> well, I'm no. staying in a field of wheat right in front of me. I should tell our listeners that we are very pleased and honored to have Godfrey Hodgson on the show today, and we'll be talking about his uh, really provocative new book, The Myth of American Exceptionalism, uh, for the following hour. And I have to tell you, I read the book and, and found it very thought-provoking as an American. I think we can make Godfrey an honorary American. He spent so much time here. Um, Godfrey, why don't you begin by t- telling us a little bit about um, your career, which has been intertwined with America for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Um, I went after I studied at Oxford, and after that I went to the University of Pennsylvania where I did a master's in, in history. I went back to England where I went into journalism. I worked on the London Times for a while, then on the Observer, and very quickly I was sent back uh, to the United States as the Observer's Washington correspondent. One interesting thing had happened to me already. When I was a a graduate student at Penn, I and another graduate student, went. well, we went to stay with uh, an African-American friend who had been at Oxford as a Fulbright, and while we, he lived in Montgomery, and while we were there, I met Martin Luther King. Did you really? Wow. And that is coming sort of full circle, because I'm just about to publish a biography of King. Really? That's uh, fantastic. But King, uh, you know, people were not really, never mind in England, people in the United States were not that really up on the civil rights movement. I, the smartest thing I ever did, actually, when I was a young correspondent, I went to uh, Mr. Russell Wiggins, the then editor of the Washington Post, Ben Bradley's predecessor, mm-hmm. and I said, I, can I have a desk in your newsroom? And he said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I promised not to be a nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the thing was that I was interested in King because I'd met him before I had some access to him, and really nobody at the post at that time was really very much abreast of of the civil rights movement. The the guy who, the reporter who uh, covered uh, the civil rights movement was called Robert E. Lee Baker, (laughs) and uh, Bob was not really tremendously sort of plugged into into African-American life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. Actually, I've said this many times on this show, but my only similar claim to fame is to have played basketball quite a bit with Barack Obama. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's yeah, good. He was at Harvard. Barack and I used to, uh, as we say, um, 
throw down. That is the that is the, we used to we used to play basketball together. Um, he's right. pretty, he's pretty good, but he wasn't as good as I was. I think. I think so. <laughs> Other than that, he beats me on that's every good. front. I but that's well, it. Yeah. I um, <laughs> yeah, I've drunk a certain amount of scotch with both Robert Kennedy and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Wow, that is fantastic. That that. So I was yeah. very privileged. I was very lucky. Yeah, that is that's priceless. There, that is just yeah. priceless. I really envy you. And you you said you also in the pre-interview had met or talked to Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yes, I, I did, because I was a White House correspondent, and um, I was working for a Sunday paper in England, the Observer, and therefore Saturday was my big day uh, for, for hard news, and I used to go to the White House uh, on a Saturday mm-hmm. uh, for the press briefing. There'd only be about a dozen people there on those days, mm-hmm. and quite often um, LBJ would just wander in and <laughs> and take the briefing himself in place of either Salinger or or George Reedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I did get to know him a little bit. Yeah, that's amazing. He's one of my favorite. Uh, I mean, I think he's, I don't know if I should really say this, because as a professional historian, you're not supposed to say these things, but I think he's a particularly American figure and tragic American figure. Well, I, what I really would most like to do now is to do a one-volume life of LBJ, mm-hmm. because there isn't. Really, no, there is, a, there, there is that very – I'm sorry, I'm going to be embarrassed here. There is an extraordinarily long biography of LBJ by an author whose name I cannot forget. It's very well Robert Caro. It's exactly right, yes. And it's, yeah. it's two volumes, I think. And um, uh, Well, I think he's more – I think he's I think he's actually into the fourth oh, volume. Oh, jeez, I can't even – And he's yeah. kind of losing momentum, too, uh, I think. I, I don't know. That's a, lot of, that's, anyway. a lot, that's a lot of pages. I mean, my attention – I have young children at home, so my attention span is about <laughs> three minutes. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, well, that's an amazing experience. And, it, of course, it informs everything in this book. Let me, let me turn to the, the book itself, then, and ask you how you came to write it. Well, I came to write it really because of a combination of well, sort of three things really. One was a, a a sort of serious, but not particularly sophisticated historian's perspective that the history of the United States was being written as though it was kind of different from the history of other countries. And I I noticed a series of, as a matter of fact, rather good lives of the founding fathers that were coming out, but they were not really what I was brought up, not least in the United States, to think of as history. In, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, they were they were hagiographical, really. That was one thing. The second thing is I began to find a... Well, I was very, very out of sympathy with uh, the Bush administration mm-hmm. uh, and particularly angered, really, that, that any criticism of the Bush administration was immediately put down to something called anti-Americanism, mm-hmm. which I resented since I'd spent my entire life devoted to the United States. Uh, and the third thing was, was a certain number of irritations. I mean, I remember giving a talk at London University, and an elderly retired American historian came up and explained to me patiently, as speaking to a child, that everybody else had something called nationalism, and the United States was the only country that had something called patriotism. <laughs> and sometime around the same time, I was on a radio talk, and somebody from, you'd be amazed to hear, the American Enterprise Institute mm-hmm. came on the program, and it was quite apparent that this woman was under the impression that the United States alone defeated Nazi Germany, and mm-hmm. that neither the that wicked British Empire and all the even more wicked Soviet Union had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I, this a kind of accumulation of these little bits of grit in the oyster mm-hmm. made me think that there was a, a book to write. Now, the other thing, of course, is that I've been, I've been writing a book about uh, Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And um, I came to realize that there had been a huge amount of myth-making about the Founding Fathers and about uh, the Plymouth and... and uh, in, in particular, I was amused by a number of uh, sort of grossly ahistorical. You know, the famous thing is is about uh, is about um, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, sorry, somebody's talking to me off camera. As it were. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the the famous thing about the, the uh, uh, city built upon a hill and mm-hmm. Winthrop. Uh, you know, uh, Reagan on every possible opportunity 
described in graphic terms how Winthrop had made this sermon in a boat off the coast of Massachusetts when actually it was made in a church in Southampton. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the general, uh, the, the, the mythic quality of a lot of the, of the most cherished uh, anecdotes of American exceptionalism. And I, I suppose I, I began the book in, in a mixture of irritation, uh, ideological irritation, and really sort of a disappointed love, really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I tried to explain in the preface of the, the, mm-hmm. of the book, and that possibly not with great success. No, you did. You did explain it with great success. I, of course, you know. Sometimes in these interviews, um, I will confess to the uh, listeners that I have to ask questions to which I already know the answer <laughs> because I've read the book. So uh, yes, it is very well explained in the introduction, kind of beautifully explained too, because it, it's clear that while you haven't fallen out of love uh, with America, you um, are disappointed with recent events. And I can say that no, I, I, I would dispute that I've fallen okay. out of love with America. I've fallen no, I out of yeah. love with a certain way of writing about. Yeah. America. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No. I'm sorry. Maybe I haven't spoke. But I, I can say that I have also, as an American, encountered um, some elements of American exceptionalism, and I've also found a, 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 what is really a quite shocking ignorance of certain things. And World War II is one of them. And I actually teach military history here. And one of the things that I'm always at pains to point out is, uh, while the United States played a significant role in World War. Two, it was largely won by the Soviets, which is something you point out as well, and that's quite true. Um, let me um, kind of launch us into a discussion of American exceptionalism by proposing to you a distinction, uh, and I don't know if you have made this distinction before in talking about the book, but I want to distinguish on the one hand the ideology of American exceptionalism, which, which is sometimes called American messianism. Um, yeah. And then on the other hand, and we'll talk about this in the second part, that is the empirical question of American uniqueness. That is, how different was um, America's history and nature from that of other comparable nations? Yeah. And these are very different questions, I think. So let's, sure. let's begin with Ameri- what I'll just call American messianism or the ideology of American exceptionalism. Um, what are its origins? Well, I think one of its origins is in European Protestantism. And I mean, this is one of the main points I'm trying to make, is that a great deal of what is both good and less attractive about the United States is firmly rooted in in European culture, not just high culture, but in... And one of the aspects of Protestantism is this sense of being a chosen people with a mission mm-hmm. uh, to uh, bring to the world with a a um, uh, yeah with, with, with a destiny uh, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, reach the world, and I think that um, the um, the uh, uh, I, I, I'm trying to avoid calling them the pilgrims because they didn't call themselves pilgrims, but but let's go ahead and call them the pilgrim fathers. I think they they had a vision of themselves as destined, essentially. Uh, to worship God in their own way. That's mm-hmm. what they meant, understood by, by freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think that that idea was one which was rooted in uh, German and uh, Netherlands and English and Scots Protestantism, and it's certainly to be found uh, you know, all over Europe in the 16th and 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... The, the the next thing that kicks in, so to speak, is that um, the United States, or actually America, colonial America too, offered practical freedoms uh, of a kind that were not available in Europe. Mm-hmm. And one of those was the availability of free land. Mm-hmm. And in fact, quite a few early American thinkers identified free land as the single most important difference Mm -hmm. between life in Europe and life in the United States. Now, if you want to be kind of bitchy, you can say, well, the land is free because they chased the Native (laughs) Americans off it. But but, but the fact is that that, um, in most of Europe, uh, by the 17th century, it was very, very hard to acquire land. Mm -hmm. uh, And in... uh, the um, colonial America was very easy to acquire land. Mm-hmm. In fact, virtually everybody 
except except you know women, slaves, blacks, and newly arrived uh, immigrants. Uh, could aspire to any man. So, uh, if you if you trace its origins to this um, kind of pro- Protestant uh, notion of freedom, which I, which I quite like, I like the conception um, that is freedom to worship, and then uh, associated with uh, f- freedom to acquire territory or or landed property. But at some point, though, um, you know, in the American Revolution or the Revolutionary Era, the the, the notion sort of gels and becomes politicized, doesn't it? And yes. the, it's in the founding fathers occasionally. As we call yes, it. I, I think that. Well, I think one thing to add at this point, which I, I I do believe, but I'm not sure that I've succeeded in proving, as it were, in the book, uh, is that I think that um, America was the United States was more exceptional in the first 60 years, as to say, between the Revolution and the Civil War, um, than later. Mm-hmm. That uh, a number of things of which urbanization and industrialization are the two most obvious made the United States in many ways more like Europe mm-hmm. after 1865 than mm-hmm. it had been uh, before. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other thing which is, I think, quite important is that there is a tendency in the United States in what you might call a sort of formal patriotism to be found in high school text uh, and in uh, in the July the 4th oratory, which is to compare the United States uh, with, or I'm sorry, to compare the United States with the Europe as it was before 1800. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was uh, to, to fail to notice that, that many of the freedoms uh, which uh, were not available in Europe at the, in the 18th century were well before the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think one has to put this rather carefully, but what I'm trying to say is that that um, the, the official American patriotism ignores the changes that were happening in many other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I've encountered that as well. So then, after it enters the uh, the founding fathers, then it is uh, further elaborated. Uh, is this is this is this correct? It was further elaborated in the 19th century, particularly by people like Jackson, and you associate it with uh, this notion of manifest destiny. Well, uh, I think the. I mean, I think in a way that the two key figures are Jefferson and Madison. Mm-hmm. Because they really do work out uh, a coherent uh, political theory and philosophy, uh, which is about uh, freedom. Now, I think you have to be very, very careful when when George W. Bush speaks about freedom. I'm not quite sure what he means. I think he means he means freedom from being ruled by George the <laughs> Third. You see what I mean? But that's mm-hmm. not really kind of an option at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that um, Madison in particular made a, a philosophically serious attempt to create uh, a, 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 a political system which was based uh, not just on the rule of law, but on uh, popular sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And I think that was original. It was not wholly original, mm-hmm. because... Uh, certainly the people who are sometimes called the old Whigs uh, or the Parliament men, the people described in Caroline uh, Robbins' book in the early 18th century in England were working on the same lines. But, of course, the, the, the trouble was that um, they were not free to say so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Jefferson and Madison were in a position where they had made themselves mm-hmm. free to say so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is a sense in which uh, the the American Revolution does create real, though limited, political freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So then again, let's move forward a little bit in the 19th century and past um, uh, Madison and Jefferson. And, and uh, I'm uh, certainly not hugely enthusiastic about Jackson. <laughs> yes, no, it you're doesn't not. seem to me. Well, that it's, he... it's it's honestly hard to be enthusiastic about Jackson in hindsight. 
Um, but, yeah, I think uh, so. yeah, I, I think it, it it is. I mean, he 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 did some things. <laughs> I think that's the most we can say. Uh, um, but yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about Tocqueville because a lot of people, and I think yourself included, mentioned that um, Tocqueville or the way Americans read Tocqueville has a lot to do with the further evolution of this notion of American exceptionalism or American messianism. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yes. Well, I I see Tocqueville in a slightly different way. I mean. It, it, Tocqueville was was a Democrat. He was also a very conservative Democrat. Uh, he didn't have much difficulty with with the idea of optimates, the idea of rule by the uh, by the best, mm-hmm. which is after all what aristocracy means literally. Um, I think that Tocqueville may well have been right in perceiving equality as the characteristic of American society, as he met it west of the Alleghenies, at least, uh, in the 1830s. But that is by no means the uh, the most striking characteristic of American society today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, it's, it's uh, one of the least equal societies in the world, mm-hmm. both financially and in some other ways, culturally, educationally, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So... Um, one of the stories is that is a story of decline in certain respects. That the 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 United States was not, as is sometimes suggested, the first place in the world where there was free or virtually free uh, education for all. Mm-hmm. But it was nevertheless a country in which the access to education. Uh, practical freedom, religious freedom, possibility of acquiring land, all of these things were, on the whole, more available earlier uh, than they were elsewhere. Mm-hmm. However, what I am arguing against is this, uh, the notion of, of exceptionalism in the sense of, uh, of the United States being sort of totally different and as, as, as a place where uh, all these... Uh, political good things mm-hmm. uh, only uh, were to be found. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see exactly. Um, so then let, let's take the story forward into the 20th century, and uh, a couple of people that you mentioned as um, um, primary expositors uh, of the uh, myth, as you call it, of American exceptionalism um, were Woodrow Wilson on the one hand, and then most recently George Bush. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the way in which um, it was the the notion evolved in the 20th century. Well, I mean, Wilson was a southerner. Uh, he was quite clearly uh, racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he there there is a, a, a it's almost sort of like shooting fish in a barrel to pick a, a contrast between what Wilson said he believed and the way he acted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that doesn't mean to say that uh, his politics were wholly invalid, or even that they were they were particularly bad. But he, the, the, I mean, it's very hard for me to to uh, to see Woodrow Wilson except through the through the lens of Keynes's famous description of this sort of uh, um, uh, sort of hypocritical um, uh, preacher. Uh, um, that. It's reinforced by the fact that I uh, spent um, three years writing a biography of Colonel House, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the the way in which Wilson has been protected and defended by a historical school in pretty an unscrupulous way in uh, in the context of, of House uh, brought me to understand how. Well, I mean, I just basically was, was not a very nice man. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a wonderful orator, even if he did tend to speak in, in iambic hexameters. Um, but what 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 I do think is is the case is that is that well, let's let's back up. Both the Clinton administration and the second Bush administration described themselves on every possible occasion as being neo-Wilsonian. Mm-hmm. And the 
the only thing that can really mean, I think, is that they uh, um, accepted and wished to carry forward Wilson's rather naive plans for uh, making the world democratic, whatever exactly that means. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that happened, I think, between uh, 1919 and 2000 uh, is that alongside the classic principles of freedom and democracy, a, a particular kind of economic freedom or a particular style of capitalism had become strapped onto this messianic uh, message that was being brought to the world. Mm -hmm. And that is what, um, although there's a great argument about what exactly it means, that, you know, I'm talking about the Washington Consensus. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the United States should use its uh, its weight in international affairs uh, to uh, propagate the financial deregulation, uh, to you know, privatization of uh, public functions, uh, all those things which are generally mm -hmm. you know, labeled as uh, as the Washington Consensus, it was actually new, I think. Mm -hmm. And I I think to to give the George W. Bush a break, uh, I, I think he was by no means the only American statesman in the 1990s and the beginning of this century uh, who, who kind of believed that that was the national mission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's um. Yeah. Let's turn directly to. I mean, I think that most readers will be very interested in your um, understanding of the way in which the ideology of American exceptionalism. Um, impacted or affected the Bush administrations to go to um, war after 9-11 in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Is there, is there a direct link between Bush and, and his belief or the belief of his advisors that America had some sort of messianic mission and this um, turn to force in the Near East? I, I think... One of the things is I've just... Just this morning, I was listening to Tony Blair uh, repeating what he'd said in his famous Chicago speech, but basically this justifying uh, liberal interventionism. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people in the United States took for granted, um, even before 9-11, that liberal interventionism was justified. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, that's a fairly new idea. I mean, you can say, okay, uh, Jefferson uh, took on the, uh, the, the Tripoli pirates. Uh, you, know, <laughs> that, you can call that liberal interventionism if, if you want. Uh, you, can, you can certainly say that... Uh, you, you can't very easily say that Wilson's decision to go to war uh, in 1917 was liberal interventionism because he, he resisted that decision. Uh, uh, to the bitter end. Mm -hmm. Nor can you really say that um, Franklin Roosevelt took the United States into war against Hitler because, technically speaking, it was Germany that declared war on the United mm -hmm. States. But that's rather, you know, trifling, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but certainly the idea that it was the duty of the United States to use force to spread its beliefs in the world reached, well, a new intensity or a new confidence mm -hmm. in the last 20 or, or 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would say that I, I, I'm not an American historian, but I can say that I quite agree with you that uh, my, my impression was that uh, that American political leaders since the mid-19th century have been uh, very hesitant to um, involve themselves in what is sometimes called foreign entanglements, and that yeah, yeah. At, at each moment they... Um, they, they resisted quite strongly, and in some cases we even condemn them for resisting. Uh, and and we, we today, looking back on it, say they should have gotten in sooner than they did. Um, yeah, so, sure. so th but, but doesn't that kind of vitiate the notion that, um, uh, that the ideology of American exceptionalism was moving American policy? Well, I, I would look at this from a different point of view. If you look at the, the project for a new American century, mm -hmm. which clearly did have some influence on the on the second Bush administration, although actually not right at the beginning. I think it was only after 9-11 that this particular coterie of people became influential. Mm -hmm. But I, 
as far as I can see, the, the, the basic idea is the United States must be uh, militarily powerful and uh, uniquely powerful. Uh, it's almost a kind of looking for enemies to justify um, military power. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all you know, great nations, you know, spend. Uh, resources on defending themselves, and, mm-hmm. and they have uh, continuing discussions about what level of, of um, military expenditure is necessary. But but it seems to me that somehow the idea of the lone superpower, mm-hmm. which I, always makes me giggle, because it always makes me think of of the Italian journalist Ariana Fallaci teasing Henry Kissinger about being the Lone Ranger. <laughs> I mean, the, the word "lone" is not the usual word in the English language in this country. So, you know, we, one would say the only. Mm-hmm. You can say you can say United States is the only superpower. Mm-hmm. The moment you say the lone superpower, mm-hmm. you hear the theme music of a you know of a, of a cowboy TV series with the in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it does seem to me that the, there's an element of of vain glory, but more than that, lurking behind that, of, of, of self-interest. That mm-hmm. There are groups in the United States who have a powerful interest in, in an excessive level of military mm-hmm. uh, Expenditure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, um, let me just uh, p- pose a what, well, it's a friendly but challenging question. I, I agree with you that there is this set of interests and that the Project for the New American Century and so on and so forth, um, maybe the American Enterprise Institute, some of these other um, uh, what are really kind of right-leaning or right-wing think tanks do, do hold that America should play a, a, an important and maybe even dominant role in, um, in, 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 in the world militarily. But my specific question, and this is I put on my historian's hat here, right. is, is whether that ideology had any impact really on um, Wilson's decision to go, or something like that, Wilson's decision to enter the First World War, Roosevelt's decision to enter the Second World War, or he was obviously forced by the Japanese Germans, but, and then most importantly, and this is where I'd like you to concentrate, in the Bush administration's decision to go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Because if you look at what they said, I think, I, can't, I don't have perfect recall, they said they wanted to fight state-sponsored terrorism and spread democracy. Yeah. Those are very, you know, I think as you would say, those are very common goals among many, many advanced nations today. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing, oh, sure. there's nothing odd about uh, it, them. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I um, personally was not abs- uh, I, I, first of all, I, I, I had no problem at all with the United States pursuing uh, Al-Qaeda into Afghanistan. It mm-hmm. seemed to me, while that might be unwise, and indeed it turned <laughs> yeah, out to be unwise, it say. seemed to me kind of inevitable. You know, I, I wasn't at all surprised by that. Um, the Iraq matter again. I, I I I didn't start out with the feeling that that was necessarily wrong. I, I gradually, and not in fact fairly rapidly, began to realize that we were being sold a whole series of bills of goods mm-hmm. uh, to justify something which they wanted to do anyway for mm-hmm. reasons they were not telling us about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do wonder about that too, though. And you do, you do say this, and and many people who I very much respect say that. Uh, the Bush administration wanted to go to war with Iraq from the beginning, but is there is there any? I mean, what is the evidence of that? Other than the fact that his well, father. Well, there are a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot of evidence if you count as evidence in the various memoirs. I mean, uh-huh. Richard Clark's uh, book and and uh, Paul O'Neill's book yeah. uh, and others. I mean, there's there's a certain amount of stuff about, you know, he's the guy who tried to kill my dad and all of this stuff. I I don't... I shouldn't laugh at that. Myself regard this as as conclusive. What I do think is that there was an almost comical degree of hubris in people like Rumsfeld. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, And even more Dick Cheney. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. I mean, I know that, you know, you, uh, you don't have to be a careful reader of history to understand that intervention in a place like Afghanistan might not be a good idea. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah really. That's better people have tried, or better nations. The, one of the, there are some interesting transformations. The last time I saw Pat Moynihan alive, uh, before he died, um, 
I, I was saying, I was expressing irritation with the, you know, people who I described as these people. And he said, well, who do you mean? You mean the president? And I said, well, I mean Rumsfeld and Cheney, for, you know. He said, oh, you mean my two liberal friends from the Nixon administration? <laughs> and of course, it's true that they were relative yeah. Republican liberals. Yeah. And so, that, so there's, there is a, there's an evolution or a change. And I think one of the crucial things um, is not 9-11, but 11-9. That's to say, it's the fall of the Berlin Wall mm-hmm. persuaded a great many people in the United States you know, but now we're the lone superpower. We don't have to take any of this shit mm-hmm. from anybody. Else. Mm-hmm. And um, in particular, the failure of the European countries to respond adequately to what was happening in the Balkans mm-hmm. had a tremendous effect and encouraged people, encouraged a certain kind of impatience, mm-hmm. which which developed into a certain kind of arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's quite that's quite an important sort of narrative there. But but I I'm very very clear. I was very very clear pretty rapidly that that um, the, um, the Bush administration's response to 9/11 was unwise. Uh, that declaring a, a war on terror. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it seems to me I'm I'm not being pedantic or. Uh, you know, academic. If I say it's a bad idea to mm-hmm. to, to declare war on an abstract noun, you mm-hmm. know? yeah, no. I, How do you ever get out of it? How yeah, do you no, win? It's true. It's a, that is that is a tough one to win. Um, but I, I would almost th- I, I like the point that you made about. Um, the Balkans conflict in particular, because it seems to me that one of the touchstones of American foreign policy for the past hundred years, and really one of its primary drivers, uh, has been, in fact, um, well, let's put a uh, let's let's put a strong term on it: disgust with Europe. Basically, that the oh, Europeans yeah. could not keep their own house in order, and we had to go take care of them. Um, and that that I think really did drive American foreign policy on. On all of the three occasions that I just cited, that is with Wilson and Roosevelt and with Bush, that, that all of them felt that the Europeans weren't going to step up or that they were behaving badly and somebody had to go take care of a bad situation. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure that's the same as American messianism. Um, but we can, you know, that's, that's a. Well, we can um, I, I, think, I think, of course, that the, there's a very strong. Uh, strain of, of anti-British feeling, which goes right back. And mm-hmm. uh, if you take somebody like John Quincy Adams, he was forever seeing British interference. We've got to do this, that, or the other, or the British will. You know, that's very strong, I think. Yeah. And it's understandable. And of course, the other thing, which is understandable, though not apparently understood very well in in uh, Britain. It, it is that Americans are, by definition, people who left Europe because they. they they are their ancestors that had a bad time in Europe. Uh-huh. I mean, that's uh, yeah. very, you know, that's a very constant strand, uh-huh. um, and that's by no means irrational. Uh-huh. No, I um, it's funny because I was just reading um, the other day a, a, a book uh, that, that, among other things, touched on the American response to the Suez crisis. And uh, you should yeah. you should hear what some of the American the, officials the Schaden, say about the British. Oh, they were really, no, the yeah. They, they, yeah. yeah, the 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 special relationship was very special and at that time. Well, I mean, my I, my friend David Watts, who sadly died young, was a brilliant political commentator. I remember writing a piece saying, you know, this special relationship episode was invented by the British in 1916. And was it was certainly ever by 1956. I mean, talk about a short 20th century. Uh huh. Yeah, no, that's, right. um, that's funny. I mean, throughout the uh, 19th century, one of the main strands of the American attitude to the world was was disdain for um, disdain mixed with envy and rivalry with with Britain. And, and there's a very powerful Irish input into that, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's um, an interesting question. Well, we're about halfway done, so I want to switch gears now and turn to the, this, sure. this empirical question, this historical question about American uniqueness, and that, and that is, just to remind our listeners, um, how America's history and nature actually, empirically, differs from that of other comparable states. And I've, I've listed a series of... Um, of statements that are sometimes said about uh, that make America different from comparable states. And I just want to kind of go through them and talk about them. Um, the first one is America is truly democratic in a way that other nations 
haven't been or aren't. And w one of the things you point out, quite rightly, is, is that American political institutions have European origins. But I wonder if it isn't the case that in the American context, certain aspects of them were exaggerated in such a way that really actually did make them very different than any other nation. I, I, I sort of don't feel very comfortable with that idea. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that, that um, I mean, one of the things which, which is, you know, I think really very widely believed in the United States is that class, in the sense of, of class domination or class privilege, it doesn't exist in the United States. And mm -hmm. That has always made me, made me laugh because uh, there are obvious class differences and class prejudices. And, and uh, you know, if you read one of my favorite books, which is The Education of Henry Adams, I mean, here you have an upper class man who's almost strangled by his contemporaries, inferiors, as he sees them, to the point where he can't bring himself really to to decide what work to do because mm -hmm. he's still everybody is such idiots. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. And he ends up feeling the only three people in the world. Um, you know, Clarence King and, uh, and uh, uh, John Hay and he are the only people who can understand everything. Mm -hmm. Except a few scientists. You know, mm -hmm. they, they yeah. Well, actually, I was, think, I was thinking in the 19th century about um, about Tocqueville again and, and, and I, I don't think it's too much to say that he actually does say that America is democratic in a way that other nations are not. Yes, he does, and and um, he he certainly, I think he focuses on equality. I mean, not democracy. Yeah, I think that's right. He, well, he, yeah, we, well, yeah. I mean, it's a He seems to use the two people, as synonyms, really, but yeah. You know, people tend to think because the book's called Democracy in, in America, it must yeah. be no, in favor of democracy, yeah, but actually. He's very unsure that democracy is a, is a desirable uh, political uh -huh, yeah. system or, or ideology. Uh -huh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you, yeah. Well, just to take the point a little bit further, then um, uh, that America was again truly democratic in a way other nations uh, haven't been art. But uh, one of the things interesting about America that might make it unique historically is that our democracy has been, uh, with some notable exceptions, very stable compared to others. Um, it has been of a longer duration than comparable democracies. And, then there are, and, and that's interesting, kind of an interesting way to put the thing because it has been so stable and of such long duration that the, that the only democracy which it can really be compared to is that in the United Kingdom. Well, I mean, it seems to me it, there's an element here of, of, uh, of defining the question in such a way that you... Or <laughs> defining the competition in such a way that you always win it. Um, the, if, you, if you start, as many Americans do, by saying that monarchy, even constitutional monarchy, excludes one from, uh, from the ranks of democracy, uh, well then, obviously, uh, the United States uh, <laughs> is more democratic. But, yeah. but actually, um, it's not, to me, self-evident that... That, that the United States is the only country with democratic traditions. I mean, I mean, for one thing, the Scandinavian countries and and Holland and mm -hmm. and, and the Britain have had, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the rule of law for a very long time, mm -hmm. and it's respected. And uh, I mean, on the whole, I would say that uh, those six or seven countries right there. I mean, to the extent that they have, and, and I think it's true more broadly in, in Europe actually, to the extent that people haven't always been democracies because they haven't always been able to defend themselves from somebody else uh, brutally mm -hmm. destroying their democracy. That's, true. That's, a, that's a good point. Um, but um, the other thing that we really don't know much about is how other societies would have developed had it not been for colonialism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it tends to be assumed even by people who are anti-colonial and anti-imperial, that somehow um, colonialism was imposed on a tabula rasa and that there were no uh, legal systems or, or political systems in any non-European societies. Mm -hmm. I mean, here what one's getting is that kind of meta-history of, mm -hmm. of the sort of, um, oh, the kind of Toynbee or, or um, what's-his-face, German inventor of this kind of thing, which I, I rather suspect anyway. Um, but I, I'm not at all happy with the idea that the United States is 
sort of the only democratic country, but because it's a circular argument. You say, oh, what do you mean by democracy? Well, I, what I mean is what we have in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, that, I think that when people say these things, they mean that, um, again, if we're just speaking about comparable nations, and those would mostly be Europeans, if not entirely, is that, you know, for example, we had no turn to fascism. We had no turn to... Uh, no, what was really inter interventionist or kind of uh, state, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of hyper-trophic communism. If I were really provocative, I would say that oh, there was a be. kind of fascism <laughs> in the American South for a hundred years after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you know, um, it, there's something to that, I suppose. Uh, if you look at uh, one-party states with mm -hmm. uh, a racial basis and a very powerful uh, sort of military uh, tradition, um, you know, you, you, you can, I can make you a case that the state of Mississippi and the state of Alabama were quasi-fascist. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, anyway. Okay. Um, well, well uh, if, you, if you don't mind, um, let me go on to the next of these propositions that is sometimes forwarded, and that is that America is a nation of immigrants in a way that other nations haven't been or aren't. How, yeah. How, yeah that, this is an extraordinarily common one, and, 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 and just on Well, that's plan. simply not true. <laughs> I had a very extraordinary uh, conversation in a, a conference in, in Oxford, and a, a woman, a female academic from whose name I've forgotten, luckily, uh, was holding forth about how um, uh, she was said to be an expert on France. And she said, it's quite impossible for anybody in France, to, for an immigrant to, you know, to, to, to achieve anything. Uh, and I, I said, well, you know, I don't know whether Sarkozy is a, an immigrant or not, because it depends on exactly what age he was when he was brought to the to, to the country. But uh, let me let me say something else. I said, I, my uh, first wife's family were French and Jews. Among them, two of them have been prime ministers. Two of them have been governors of the bank. Uh, one of them has been a governor of the Bank of, of France. Uh, well, at least one of them have been members of the French Academy, mm -hmm. and on the other non-Jewish side of my French family, uh, one of them was an Italian, uh, very limited education, who walked in across the border and qualified as a lawyer and ended up as foreign minister. Mm -hmm. It's just simply not true mm -hmm. that there are no opportunities for immigrants in other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, th I, th I think that the, the proposition is just slightly different, and that is that it isn't I, th I think the way that people would put it, it isn't it different to say that, uh, on the one hand, one can immigrate to, say, France, and on the other hand, America is entirely comprised, accepting Native Americans, of immigrants. Is there not a kind of – that's a quantitative yeah. difference, but isn't it also a qualitative difference? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose, again, uh, first of all, there, there are a lot of other countries that um, – which were built by immigrants of Brazil, Argentina, Canada, Australia. Um, France has had the same proportion of foreign-born since about 1890 mm -hmm. as the United States. Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. Um, I, and the other, the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating little factoids uh, that I know about the United States is found in, I discovered in a footnote to a general history, which is uh, Morrison and Commager, uh, which is that one third of all the people who migrated to the United States in the 19th century went home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they did. Uh, That's right. 30, 33 million people uh, went to the United States and 11 million went home. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is it's almost, the same, almost exactly the same number, slightly less, uh, if you take the period 1865 to 2000. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the extent of immigration, while wonderfully liberating and creative for some was obviously not as much of a success for others. Mm -hmm. so, um, you, so, so then you, you wouldn't be, um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't favor the argument that says that um, uh, America discovered a way to integrate many different kinds of people in a way that other nations had not, and therefore showed something to the world about the way in which people of all different ethnicities can get along. A nation of nations. A nation of nations, yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's exaggerated, but on this point, as on many others, the thing that, the thing that troubles me is the idea that these discussions are not really held 
in order to arrive at the truth, they're self-pleasing arguments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Basically intended to say, um, as the Pharisees said, thank God I'm not as other men are. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I, I, no, I agree with you completely that uh, arguments that, fact, that are comforting the, are often too comforting. <laughs> yeah, the last <laughs> sentence of my preface, which I wanted to be the title of the book, is the dangers of self-praise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, I can see that. So let, let me... Um, and if you, I mean, let me, let me be quite frank about it. If you're British, or for that matter, if you're French, you're pretty well aware of the dangers of self-praise. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been praising ourselves in a complicated <laughs> way for, for several hundred years, and the French do the same. So, by the way, do the Germans and the Spanish and the Russians and, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. And the Chinese, good God. Yeah, no, it's quite funny. Um, so let me go on to the, I have a couple more of these, and we're almost out of time here, but I want to run through them really quickly. Uh, the next proposition is that America is imperial, or not imperial, that is not imperial, in a way that other nations um, have been imperial. That is, we have avoided uh, the, the kind of standard uh, sort of great power imperialism. Well, again, it seems to me that's rather the same thing, which is defining uh, um, the terms of the argument in such a way that mm -hmm. you it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the United States, after all, uh, you know, conquered a, a continent, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's simply not the case that it was, it, 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 people are told that it was empty. Well, it was, it was, it was not only not, it was, it was not only that there were Native Americans there, but also, you know, large chunks of it belonged to other countries. Yes, yes that's true. Notably to Mexico, uh -huh. okay, you know. Uh -huh. um, and, um, and and when, when the opportunity arose, in other words, when the United States had finished expanding over the North American continent, it proceeded to start uh, moving in on Pacific Islands and on the Caribbean mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. uh, after all, there was a very, very strong movement in the South throughout the 19th century uh, to, to to bring, um, uh, you know, Cuba and other Caribbean islands and Nicaragua and other places uh, in, in different ways and different times in something which was known as the Empire of Liberty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then, but then, uh, how would you respond to someone who said, "But then it seems to be, in, you know, in the time of Wilson, or maybe a little bit before, even America turns its back on imperialism, and we begin to withdraw from all our very few foreign possessions." That is the Philippines yeah. and, and these and, and, and Cuba and and uh, you know and these other areas. Granted, we kept Hawaii, <laughs> which I guess is good well, for us. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, uh, as I was saying, that uh, uh, the the territory of the, you know, the, the continent of North America sure. uh, was was not empty. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, yeah. I I think that I think that uh, Americans shared with Europeans, including Russians, as well as the British and the French and the Germans and the Spanish and the Portuguese, uh, you know, a restless desire for trade and territory and wealth hmm. and expansion. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, if you want to say that. The, until 1898, the United States was said to be expanding on land, but it didn't expand overseas. <laughs> I, you, I, <laughs> no, I'd have I to agree with you, yeah. but it's not a, that's not a moral problem. Yeah, yeah, no, I see what you mean. No, that's a yeah, no, I, I, th I think there was something of a sea change uh, around um, 1914, but uh, we can, you know, uh, we, we can we can argue about that on the next show. So let well, me go. Well, in fact, there's some very interesting people like Carl Schurz and so on who were who were saying some. Uh, Things against empire mm -hmm. uh, before 1900, uh, which sounds very contemporary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Let, let's move on to the next of these propositions, and that is, yeah. uh, it's the much beloved America is the land of opportunity in a way that other nations haven't been or aren't. Tocqueville, I think, says this, um, and it's repeated constantly. The land of opportunity is something every American can say, and usually every immigrant to American can say, whether they're poor or not. <laughs> Only in America. Right. Only in America. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, obviously, the United States has been a land of opportunity for some people. Uh, it's not been equally a land of opportunity for everybody. Uh, and equally, other people in other countries have managed to uh, seize opportunities as well. Um, I, th I think um, a an interesting way of looking at this, which is sort of the way I was brought up in a sort of naive 
middle-class English family was that the people who went off uh, uh, and emigrated abroad were the people who couldn't make it to town. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. but, but would you say that the, uh, you know, again, we could probably cite statistics about mobility and this kind of thing, uh, or we could go to anecdotal evidence like, I, I suppose Barack Obama is a, is, a, is a bit of an example. But, you know, but people, he's not an immigrant, whatever else. No, he's not an immigrant. No, in fact, he was raised as uh, his... His mother and uh, stepmother were from Kansas, um, yeah, as, or not and, stepmother, and, but grandmother, as am I. And, and his, father a, uh, his father was a, a, a visiting student. Yeah, no, that's right. So I, I, I hope Barack and I are, I, I think of him as a Kansan, like me. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I know Kansans are great and ambitious. No, the, uh, but, the, um, but yeah, I, I do wonder if... if um, if, if there well, isn't I mean, something to the point that you know Amer- people seem to come to America in order to seek opportunity because they haven't found it where they are, um, whenever I talk to immigrants, that's what they say. They say, "I yeah, think I can course, do things here that I can't true. do at home." Yeah, of course that's true. Um, I, but but it's not necessarily the whole truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I I know a man in Washington who comes from Honduras who's who's built up a very successful business as a, as a an importer of, of seafood, and he runs a very good store, and he's made a lot of money, and that's terrific. And he's very proud of himself, and he's devoted to American patriot because he believes he couldn't have done this in Honduras. And for all I know, that that may be so. On the other hand, um, I, I also, uh, as I said, I, I know uh, I know people who've uh, you know emigrated to Brazil and to Australia and to France, and they've done very well there too. Mm-hmm. Um, if if the proposition is simply it's been marginally easier to to be successful in certain ways in the United States than elsewhere, then historically that's probably true. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 it's the exclusive mm-hmm. claim that seems to me an odd mm-hmm. one. No, I, I see just what, I see just what you mean. Um, uh, it. it yeah, I mean, I I do wonder who 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 makes that claim, but um, I, I'm sure there are such people. So let me let me. Um... Oh well, oh well. Listen, I mean, one of the most interesting things that's only two pages long is the introduction to a history of the United States written by a man who, in my opinion, is a genuinely great historian, Daniel Burstyn. Mm-hmm. And it's a string of ludicrously exaggerated exceptionist <laughs> propositions. Well, what makes us Americans different? Well, we believe in being fair, you know. Ridiculous <laughs> statements, as if yeah. nobody else believes in being fair. Yeah, no, that is, yeah, that's, that is a bit much. And I think, I think it's possibly rather hard for somebody who is American to realize how, um, Annoying his propositions are just yeah. rather at a simple level. You yeah, know? no, I can, I can, I can see just what you mean, and and, and I really, I, I want to say before, if I haven't said this already, that I, I'm of the opinion that the opinions of um, that uh, of non-Americans like yourself are extraordinarily important for us, and and should always be heard because you see things that we absolutely do not, and I, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, I, I personally well, I'm am an expert, you know. I, I I've always been very reluctant to appear to be critical of the United States. And uh, in everything that I've written, I've gone out of my way to source every opinion yeah. on an American original. Yeah. And then finally, in this last book, it, one of my children said to me that it's the first time you've really written in a, a personal book. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and I guess one of the reasons was I, I sort of thought, well, uh, you know, do I really... Am I, I, I really not allowed to have an opinion of my own on this subject? <laughs> well, we... I, see, I, there's, a, there's another thing that strikes, strikes me. I, I remember I tried to explain this in a, a talk in, in California a couple of months ago. Um, population of the United States is between 4 and 5% of the population of the world. Mm-hmm. If the United States wants to export uh, democracy to the world, does that include the idea of giving to the other 96% of the world's population any um, voice in what happens in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, there's no suggestion of allowing the Chinese to get a bigger vote in the IMF than 4%. Mm-hmm. Um, though they're about, what is it, 23% of the world's population. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if you, if you define things in ways which, which always end up with you winning the argument, mm-hmm. uh, it raises some doubts about how how genuine this 
democratic spirit really is. Yeah, I, I, I certainly see what you mean. And actually, this comes to the, uh, it's a nice segue to the fifth of the propositions on American uniqueness I wanted you to respond to. And that is that America has defended liberty and democracy abroad in ways and times and places in which other nations uh, have not or were not willing to. Well, of course, the British response to that is to say that we entered <laughs> two wars against uh, against uh, fascism two years before you did in both cases, and uh, got, got thoroughly thrashed for our pain. That's quite true, but but more generally, if we if we say America and the UK have selflessly stood up for liberty and democracy in ways that uh, other nations have not, how would you respond? Well, I again, I mean, I, I to some extent that is factually the case, although I would say that a number of other countries, including both France and Australia and Canada, you know, have also shown themselves willing to bear their share. Um, the, um, uh, but I mean, if this is, if, if one then goes on from that to saying that only the United States is um, willing to accept responsibility for other people, then I, one would say, well, then why did you decide to sabotage the League of Nations? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, there is there is something to that, but I think that. Again, but again, I I feel uncomfortable with this because I feel I'm being sort of jockeyed into the position of the of a, a, into an anti-American position, which I, which is not really mine. I do admire the extent to which oh, the yeah, United no, I, States I don't, I don't mean has to, been willing to uh, undertake uh, responsibilities, as have other countries, including mine. I, I, I just don't... I feel profoundly uncomfortable with the discourse in which... the, the nature of which is... Um, how can you not agree with me that I'm better than you are? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think anybody, any, any rational person, <laughs> rational sort of self-aware person would be uncomfortable with that. And, and I, I certainly am uh, as well. I, I do think, though, that, um, you know, I, I'm sure that your book will be extraordinarily widely reviewed, but I, I can already predict that the reviews will say, um, thank you very much, um, Godfrey Hodgson, for showing us to ourselves. Uh, because I really think there's a lot of that in America as well. Well, uh, so far I've had two notable reviews, one of which was an absolutely poisonous review. No uh, no uh, um, sort of problem guessing where that was. It was in Commentary magazine. Mm-hmm. And the other was a very thoughtful and, and sympathetic, but, but on the whole critical review, in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, oh, yeah, I had the, the other interesting thing. So I had a very nasty review in the Financial Times by who? An Englishman who's emigrated to the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I would expect that, my, you know, as you see it on blogs and see it in reviews, that you will. I, I hope. No, sure. I don't, maybe, no, I, maybe I've got I mean, my let, countrymen let me all say, wrong. One of the things <laughs> I've always been deeply impressed by is the, is the willingness of Americans to be critical of their own society. Indeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of the critical ideas I have, I learned from Americans. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of the actual points I wanted to make, and it'll be the final final question that I have for you, and that is that, you know, it, it you 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 say you say in the book that this this notion of the, the I would call it again the ideology of American exceptionalism or American mechanism is, is widely held by Americans. But just recently, we voted a regime out of power, which. Um, seems to have been inspired, at least according to your version of events, by the ideology of American exceptionalism. So uh, how can both these things be the case? I mean, have, or have we come to our senses suddenly? Well, <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> yes. But also, uh, let us say that um, it did take eight years mm-hmm. and um, that, um, you know, it was by no means certain that uh, Senator Obama would win the election until... Um, the um, particular um, uh, uh, version of capitalism which is being wished on the world by, uh, you know, Professor Summers and and Mr. Greenspan and and, uh, Secretary Rubin Mm -hmm. uh, had sort of collapsed in a pile of of dust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really only after, as we say, Lehman Brothers that Mm -hmm. um, it was certain that um, the United States was prepared to accept a fellow with these... Mm -hmm. uh, Antinomian ideas. <laughs> Antinomian, and, that's a good way of putting it. Good luck to him. You know. <laughs> yeah, I say good luck to him too. Oh, yeah. it's a t- I wouldn't want that job. That that is no, a, no, that's a, no. That's a tough one. Yeah, I saw somebody just in some completely different context the other day was saying, 
my God, you aged. You look as though you were the president of the United States. Exactly. Well, actually, I, uh, I was yeah. going to say, if, if Barack is listening, um, I would be happy to play basketball with him again. But if he needs help fixing the country, I got nothing. I got, I got absolutely nothing. For <laughs> well, I, I, I must say, I, I am a huge admirer of his. I thought his, particularly his first book was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's extremely skilled politically, but yeah, I think yeah. he's got a hell of a problem on his mm-hmm. hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I or think rather, I... A, you know, I've always thought in the end, uh, you know, what gets you is, you know, in the end, is that one of the illnesses that you have prevents the doctors fixing the other one. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm afraid that's his problem, too, that... that um, he can't fix the things that he set out to fix very easily mm-hmm. uh, because of the financial problems, which are... Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the oddest things is how many of the people responsible for those problems he's brought into the administration. That is truly incredible. Timothy, Geithner, yeah. Timothy Geithner, I mean, he was... I, I don't mean yeah. to launch off into a political discussion, but, yeah. I mean, if anybody is responsible for this, it's got to be yeah. Timothy Geithner. He was, yeah. he was asleep at the switch. I mean, he yeah. was the guy there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I... I have had only one very brief and very pleasant experience with Mr. Rubin, who couldn't be more helpful to me in a small matter. But, but um, uh, he is the man who lobbied and pushed for deregulation and for the repeal of Glass-Steagall for, for years. Yeah, no. If any single man has responsibility for what's happened, he's... Yeah, he's I don't, yeah no, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand it. Well, anyway, we've taken up a, a huge amount of your time, and I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Let me... Um, close with our uh, traditional final question, that, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next book about? Well, my, my, I've got a book, a biography of Martin Luther King, which is about mm-hmm. yeah, to be published, yeah. uh-huh. very soon, in a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I am trying to persuade a number of publishers, most of whom are not, not rushing forth with buckets <laughs> of money at the moment, to let me write a, a one-volume life of Lyndon Johnson. Well, let me tell them if they're listening that they should let you do that and give you <laughs> a six-figure contract tomorrow. Oh, because I would, I would, I would love to, uh, I would love to interview about that. Because as I say, Johnson is just a character that I find endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I mean, well, one, one well. of the stories about him is so typically American. I don't know if it's true. You tell me. That is that Johnson, after elections, um, he wondered why everyone didn't vote for him. He didn't, he didn't quite understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just find that the, amazingly what, American. Rationality would have dictated yeah. the right. Why did yeah. every, Doesn't everybody like me? No, it's an amazing thing. Well, anyway. Yeah. God, Listen, I'm very grateful for being so merciful. I mean, you could have been much, much harder to me if you wanted to. Oh, you know, it's interesting. And he said, you know, I mean, I think one of the important things is that, uh, you know, um, I, I agree with some of the things in the book and I don't agree with others. And what else would you yeah. expect? You know, I mean, that's, well, that's the way friendly discourse is, is, um, is conducted. You know, we're, yeah, it's exactly. like, John Stuart Mill said, you know, you've got to get all the ideas out there and pick the right ones and then go forward. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Godfrey Hodgson, we've, we've taken up a ton of your time, and, and we really appreciate you, you being on the show. The book is The Myth of American Exceptionalism. It's just been published by Yale University Press. And promise me that when your next book comes out, you'll be on the show again. Okay? I'd love to do that. All Absolutely. Right. All right. Well, thank you sure. very much. Enjoyed all it. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Godfrey Hodgson about his new book, The Myth of American Exceptionalism. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.